name is Steve Cropley and I'm here with to tell you about one of the most amazing books I've ever read. I spent the last couple of nights with my nose in it. It's called Norman Conquest uh, and it's the life history so far of a remarkable friend of mine called Vic Norman who has done just about everything there is to be done with cars, motorbikes and aeroplanes. And the best news of all is that Vic, the author, is with me tonight, today, whatever the hell time this goes out, to tell us all about it. <clears throat> um, welcome, Vic. Oh, welcome. It's, it's great to be able to talk to you about it, Steve. And, uh, you know, as you know, it, it's the first thing I've ever written. And, well, why did I do it? I mean... Well, it, let, let, me, let, let me start with that. I, I, I know you reasonably well. I've known you for the last 30 years. And the thing I've never seen you do is write anything. I've, uh, I've always thought you'd rather pick up the telephone. So what on earth made you write 85,000 words with your own hand? That's what I'm most proud of. You know, I learned to two finger type because my writing's so bad, even I can't read it. So, <laughs> so you, started, you started writing this longhand and couldn't read your own writing. So you learned to type, that it? Correct, yeah. But, you know, I started because my my grandchildren, I've got lots of grandchildren and they'd never met my mum or my dad. My dad died when he was very young. He was only 46. And I just thought it would be nice for them to know a bit more about my side of the family. So I thought it would be about five pages and get it printed at local printers. And I started doing it about 12 years ago. And um, and then I lost the notes and then. I started again and then lockdown came, COVID came. And I thought, God, I'm gonna be so bored. I've got to do something. So I started doing it. And that's what actually made it happen. It, it happened because of lockdown. Yeah, amazing. But I mean, your dad, you know, you've had this life of cars, bikes and aeroplanes that we'll get into, but he was very uh, influential on you, wasn't he? Yeah, very much, very much so. I mean. I idolised him. He wasn't a great dad. He was never at home. And, you know, my mum and dad had sort of lived apart from, from when I was about 10 years old, I suppose. But he was always there. And I, I just loved the things he did. He was, you know, he loved Evering Mechanical. Um, he, was, he went into the Merchant Navy, can you believe, when he was 13 years old, doing an apprenticeship, an engineering apprenticeship. And he was an engineer and he just loved mechanical things. And that rubbed off on me. He made he made decent amount of money so he could have all the toys. Right. And the toys were things like give us a give us a flavor. Well, you know, the first the first toy I think I really remember him having was actually he came roaring up the drive of our house on a Vincent motorbike. I didn't know it was a Vincent. It was it was a black shadow. And I must have been about four or five years old. And this thing turned up. He had his suit on and his tie was round, you know, no helmet or anything. And I'm looking at this thing and next morning, he, his, his factory was about four miles from where we lived. And he said, do you want to come on the bike, boy? And he lifted me up and he put me on the tank. He said, hold on there. No helmet, no nothing. I mean, you'd be arrested today. <laughs> and I went four miles on that Vincent to the factory. And yeah, I mean, that's what started it all off, I suppose, that Vincent motorcycle. Well, you've had a few, haven't you? Got a few, haven't you? Uh, I've got a couple, yeah. Yeah. And then what? I mean, you, 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 there's, there's talk of go-kart racing and stuff like that, right? 
Yeah, I mean, um, I very quickly got into mechanical things, really, because um, I just loved anything mechanical. And I remember wrecking one or two lawnmowers and at the weekend, taking them to bits and putting a plank in. And, you know, we used to make the old fashioned soapboxes you steered with your feet. Yeah, we all <laughs> did that stuff. But I did it by screwing a plank to the to the lawnmower and then the blades were still whirling around. <laughs> I'd go flying around, I mean, highly dangerous, all tied up with rope. Um, and of course, no one was really taking any notice. You know, I was yeah. just let to do this stuff. And yeah, that led to go-karting, I suppose. And I'll tell you what happened with go-karting. My dad, my dad went to America. I think he went, he went to see Joe Louis fight. And he went over either on the Queen Mary or the Queen Elizabeth. I don't know what it was. And um, not long after he got back, this, this go-kart arrived from America with a Clinton engine and a big open exhaust. And it turned up at home and you had to push start it, didn't have a clutch. And um, I completely wrecked the garden with this thing. I went charging <laughs> around, <laughs> completely wrecked. But through that, my dad got friendly with a most lovely man and he was, he was called Big Alf. And he, he was known as Man Mountain Dean, and he was a professional wrestler. And he was the softest, nicest, kindest man you'd ever meet. But he played all the, all the bad parts in those British early 50 films, because he was so big. <laughs> and he, I remember going to Tilbury, and he opened, I think, the first go-kart go track in London at Tilbury Docks. And I remember going there and driving a go-kart around there. I don't know, I must have been about six or something. Um, and that's what got me into racing, I suppose, and yeah. karting and anything like that, yeah. So you've had, you've had these kind of phases in your life, haven't you? you know, the motorbikes have been a lingering hobby. In fact, you and I have been in the same dopey event for old blokes, um, the Pioneer Run and so on. We're going to do a bit more, aren't we? We are, we're looking forward to it, yeah. Well... Yeah, the go-karting all stopped because I, I was at boarding school and I had, I'll get on to the cars, I had to forge my license because in those days you weren't allowed to race. The RAC wouldn't let you race unless you were 16 and I was like 14. So I forged my birth certificate and sent it off, managed to get a license, started racing go-karts. And then, and then, yeah, when I left school, I left school and... Um, I'd met Chris Craft, the, the saloon car driver, and we used to go to Brands Hatch pretty well every meeting and watch him race his Anglias and Capris and all that stuff. And I suppose it was just terribly exciting. And then, and then in 1971, I met Alan de who's actually with me now. Um, <laughs> and um, Alan, Alan really was then preparing a car to race at Le Mans for 72, the Duckham special. And um, while I was there, I was, I was working, doing a bit of work on an, with an engineering company and it had gone broke in 1971 when Rolls-Royce went into receivership. And he said, look, you don't want to do, why don't you just buy an old car and start racing? And you know, um, a bit of luck, you'll make some money and be able to sell it at the end of the year. And, you know, I, I, that's actually what happened. And it was 
by default, it wasn't by any good judgment, for God's sake. Um, it's just that the stuff I ended up buying and using was just going up in value all the time. But of course, yeah. I got it terribly wrong, like everyone else. I mean, I bought a GTO Ferrari, um, and I'd paid a world record price, actually, for it. I paid £13,000 for it. I hate talking about money because money's never been an issue with cars with me. It's just having the passion to have the cars. And I remember the guy who I bought it from, a lovely man called Pete Nguyen's, who owned um, the Queen of Hearts, I think it was, cake shop in Newbury. Um, Pete the Bun, we used to call him. Pete the Bun. Pete the Bun. And I remember <laughs> being in his sitting room and agreeing to buy this car. And he said, you know, he was going to buy a, a, a very nice silver ghost and he wanted the money for that and he said you know Vic someday this car is going to be worth a million pounds I thought he was completely and utterly off his rock <laughs> and now it's uh, 10 million or more probably yeah yeah now probably 30 or 40 or 50 million who's to say um but you know I've I sold it um because I needed to pay kids school fees and got a world record price I got 20 grand for it which was fantastic <laughs> <clears throat> and what was quite amusing a few years back when they were only worth about 30 million GTOs um, my son came to me he was a very good mathematician and he said dad I've been working the figures out I said what do you mean he said well if you'd have borrowed that money from the bank this is the interest you'd have paid you could have done this pay for all our school fees uh, my two sisters and you could have now given us five million pounds each <laughs> I said Sam that's why I sent you to school, so you could work it out. Now bugger <laughs> off. <laughs> and there were plenty more cars, were there? GT40s, 300S, all kinds of things. So name some names. Tell us about yeah, some Yeah, well, um, yes. Um, okay, well, um, yeah, I had, I had one of the 289 AC Cobras, um, and I bought that brand new at Ells Court Motor Show, went on the stand and... Uh, I, you know, I had terribly long rock and roll hair. <clears throat> and the guy on the stand, he wouldn't let me on. Someone sort of recognised me, and I don't know why, and he said, no, no, let him on, let him on. And uh, I met this lovely salesman called Adrian Judd, and AC cars were just such lovely people. And I remember buying this Cobra, and I think I paid £1,750 for it, with Dunlop wheels and a works hardtop. And that was our pretty well only car. My Anne used to go shopping in it. And when we had our first child, the carry cot would be put inside it. And, and AC cars were great. I remember going along the Kingston bypass and the front wheel suddenly let go and came up, started burning its way up through the bodywork. And I oh, drove off on the side of the road. And I rang up, managed to get a lift back home. I rang up AC Cars the next day and I told them what had happened. They said, don't worry, leave it with us. And two weeks later, they said, come and get your car. They'd completely repaired it. They completely repainted it. It was like a new car again. And they're just lovely people. So, yeah, the Cobra was a lovely thing. Um, the GT40 came about. There was a funny thing about the GT40. I don't know if I should tell you about it, but I don't <laughs> think on. it's in the book. Uh, the GT40, so um, it, was, it was owned by this um, uh, American guy who had a program there on TV, Vic Damone. He had the car. Oh, yeah, he's a and, singer, wasn't he? Um, 
thing. And he used to drive on stage in the GT40, I think, and get out. Anyway, I bought the car off him. Didn't it, it was quite cheap. It was probably about four and a half grand or something like that. Wow. And <clears throat> I ended up, and it ended up, and it was on racing tires. It was terrible on the road. It ended up being my wife's shopping car. So that was the car she used to use every day. And I remember, I remember then I needed to sell it again to get something. And I advertised it for sale. And this guy turned up and he, he was known as Monkey Brown. Well, he's a well-known car dealer. And he turned up and he, he wanted to buy the car, you see. So he looked at the car and he said, well, yeah, okay, we'll have the car, but I've got this big diamond ring. I want you to take that in part exchange. I said, well, I don't want a diamond ring. He said, no, no, no. He said, walk up the road with me now. Right, this is near where I lived. Yep. Walk up the road to the jewellers and we'll go in the jewellers and see what it's worth. So I thought, well, fair enough. Went to the jewellers. They said, oh, no, we'll give you four or five grand for the ring. I said, oh, fine, okay. Went back to where we were, ended up doing the deal, right? He drove off in the car. Um, and I went back to Jill and said, okay, here's a ring. I'd like my full grand. He said, oh, no, we don't want it. And, of course, it was a con. He'd already been to the jeweler's shop. Oh. So I really thought I'd had it, you know. But luckily, he bought the car, sold it straight on to Hexagon. And what I had done is kept a logbook because it had my dad's personalised number on. And I ended up getting all my money back from Hexagon, who did the right thing. And they had the ring back. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a GT40. Good. And then um, I, I suppose the car I probably loved more than any of the other cars was my um, 250 short wheelbase Ferrari. Yeah. Which we drove, we drove all over Europe, and I raced it in France and with the French Ferrari owners club, and we where did, did that. Where did that fit in the sequence? Um, that was before the GTO. That was um, that was pretty well after after the Cobra, I think probably right. got that quite early. I kept it a long time, paid four and a half grand for that, and I um, yeah, I, I I really wish I'd have kept that car. It was just a lovely thing, yeah. um, and I raced it a lot and used it a lot, and um, it was a great, fun, reliable, comfortable car where. The GTO, great looking car, but not as nice to use as the short wheelbase. Yeah, I see. Yeah, people say this, don't they? Those of us. Yeah. Many people can make the choice, to be quite honest, Vic. <laughs> well, um, there you go. But, you know, I only ever, I only ever, I couldn't, I wasn't a collector. I couldn't afford to be. So I had to sell something to get something else. And then I managed to get this D-type Jaguar. So I had a D-type. I didn't realize how famous it was. It had been a hex, a hex kind of had the car, but it was an Ikuria cost car, okay. um, MWS 302. And it won Spa with Ninian Sanderson and Ron Flockhart. And it was in a bit of a sorry state. And I sent it down to Lynx Engineering. They rebuilt the car. It, had a, it should have been a short nose car, but it had a long nose. And I raced that car quite a lot. And the one car I always just wanted, without a shadow of doubt, was a 250F Maserati Grand Prix car. And I was very friendly, and still am, with 
um, Neil Corner, big car racer. Yeah. And and Patrick Lindsay, God bless him, who was ahead of Christie's. But, and Patrick had um, one of the 57 works cars that um, that had had a pretty hard life, I have to say. I think um, I think Innes Ireland owned it for a while and it had had quite a lot of crashes, uh, lots of new parts made. But it was basically the continuing whatever, as gents used to say, it had continual history. Yeah. Um, 2527. And, and, and basically I was at Silverstone with racing my D-type. I drove there, didn't, didn't have a trailer, drove there on the road, raced it at Silverstone. And uh, Neil asked me to go into his um, motor. In those days, he was the only person with a motor. And Patrick was there. Neil said, look, I know you want, I know you want a 250. They were always too much money. Yeah. Always. They'd gone up to be worth ridiculous amount, 30 grand or something. And, you know, Neil said, I know you want 250F. Um, Patrick likes your D-type, although he's already got one. Um, he wants to swap. So I said, well, okay. So Patrick walked in. Neil said, Vic wants to do a swap as well. So literally on a bit of paper, we just both wrote, I give you this, you give me that, no money exchanges, swap. <laughs> so then I owned the tip. I couldn't get home. <laughs> so <laughs> I rang Anne up, who hadn't come with me. She was looking after one of our babies at the time. And I said, oh, look, can you, and she said, oh no, you've crashed a car, oh no, what, how about you, all right? I said, no, I'm fine, but I haven't crashed a car, I've sold it and I've got a single seater and I can't drive it on the road. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved the 250F. It was it it gave me the most fun racing actually. We, How long did you have it? I had it. I raced it in all those Lloyd's and Scottish and uh, Bamford stuff. I I had it for about five or so years. Yeah, and right. I used to do 17, 17 meetings a year. And what, uh, what what was it like to drive? What was everybody? Even Sterling Moss used to go on about the 250F. What what what? What was so great about the 250F? Well, I'm not prom I'm not pretending to be a great driver. Okay, uh, so I'm not pretending to be a great great driver because, you know, in historic racing, a lot of these historic racing boys they really think they are Sterling Moss, and you know they're pretty good drivers, but they're not Sterling Moss and they're not <laughs> Fangio and they're not you know they're not in that league in my book. No. But what's it like? It was just a lovely, easy car to drive. It gave you a lot of confidence, and um, in the faster corners, you could you could set it up and you could just gently drift it, and it didn't feel twitchy. It didn't feel. It just felt smooth. You know, it just felt easy and a nice engine, um, unfussy, pretty fast, pretty fast. Yeah, I think at Ricard, we were clocked doing about 148 miles an hour yeah gearing we had you know pretty fast really yeah plenty fast enough breezy yeah um to, to, so there was a but there's a transition i mean i know you best for the airplanes yeah and, and there, there's a, obviously a transition wasn't there there was there'd been a family connection with aircraft and you had a license very early didn't you but yeah tell us how the emphasis changed to airplanes well yeah, 
what happened was I had license very early because I was very lucky because my dad was very well known at the local flying club and I went down there just when I was 17 and they really looked after me because you know my dad died when he was 46 and I was 14 so they knew my dad really well where, 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 was, it? where was it Stapleford oh yeah Stapleford yeah which is a wonderful airfield and a lovely lovely family who run it um it's it's just a great place to learn to fly actually and and they've got the best cafe for bacon sandwiches and <laughs> stuff like that you could ever imagine <laughs> um yeah so i went down there and i i think they were at the time charging seven pounds ten shillings for a flying lesson um but i don't think they i don't think i hardly ever paid they just used to you know let me go flying and stamp I got my license, but I didn't really have a need for it. I didn't know what I wanted to do. It was ending up costing quite a lot of money. Um, but what happened was then I stopped, I stopped the flying. And um, what then happened, we went to Patrick Lindsay's house for the weekend. And he had his, one of his biplanes there, a stomp biplane. Lovely summer, sunny day. And he took me flying and he took my wife and flying and I fell in love with this biplane you know I'd never been in a biplane open cockpit biplane and I thought I've got to have one and by chance within a week I met a guy who's a good friend of mine called Richard Good who was captain of the British aerobatic team and he had a stomp that he wanted to sell well so I suddenly owned this aeroplane and um, couldn't really fly it properly I I crashed it actually on the first time I went to Silverstone, raced my old car, crashed it on landing because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> what was quite funny, Steve, was I had this RAF pilot with me who lived near where we used to live and he got over 25,000 over 25, hours flying Hercules aircraft right. all over the world. Right. And he came as a passenger and we crashed on the runway, wiped the undercarriage off and he jumped out. <laughs> And he said, God, he said, I, I've done lots of flights, but I've never been in a crash before. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I then thought I'd better start learning to fly because I'm going to hurt myself. And what really, what really turned me on it, Steve, on the flying was that basically Richard then told me that he would, if I took my biplane to air shows, in those days there were lots of air shows, um, they'd pay me to turn up and he would fly the airplane till I learned how to fly it properly. And I was getting paid quite a lot of money to turn up and um, for my airplane to do a display. And, you know, unlike the car racing now, which you just have to pay huge amounts of money to entry, although in my days you didn't have to because Marlborough Baron Chulo de Graffenried used to get us all together and take us to Ricard and places like mm -hmm. that just yeah. before the Grand Prix and he'd give us 1500 quid uh, to go towards it which would be enough money to get your tickets drive the car down in a, with a trailer behind yeah. and do the race so yeah I then just got hooked on the flying really and the car I had to sell the car the 250F yeah. um, to buy the definitive aerobatic single seat aeroplane so that's what I did, which, which was a Czechoslovakian airplane called a Zlin 50. Right. And I started training and I 
felt really sick, kept feeling sick. And I'd train every day as much as I could until I felt sick, then I'd stop. And I suddenly thought, you know, if I don't do something about this, I'm going to go broke very quickly. I've got to get a sponsor. So I managed to get Mitsubishi on board as the sponsor. And I was sponsored by them for eight years, which was fantastic. By then, you were living down the road from them, weren't you? Just, uh, just near Sirencester, where not, not far from where you are now. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember the Zlin 50. I can remember you putting on a demo for, uh, for a few of us at Duxford, actually. Yeah. And I yeah. remember you departing upside down. So you took off, turned, you know, sort of inverted and climbed out upside down. It was quite a sight, I tell you. Well, the thing about flying is to make, is to make the easy look difficult, you know. So I learned that very early on. Don't push, <laughs> don't push the boat out and hurt yourself. Just do something that Joe Public thinks looks yeah. great. And it's actually pretty easy to fly upside down. <laughs> I went, yeah. I remember you... There was also a two-seater Zlin, wasn't there? There was. And I had... remember going up, you took me flying, and I remember going down the middle of the Kemble runway, upside down at about, I don't know, 200 feet, would it be? Oh, I must have been flying quite high that day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought um, I, Yes, well, I, I had, and I still have, actually, when they, you know, it's pretty controlled now, um, air displays. And you have to have an air display license. And um, I've got an aerobatic clearance down to 30 feet. So yeah, wow. I can fly if I was so inclined, which I'm not inclined to do with a stim and biplane and wing walkers standing on top. No, no, no. How did that all start? Because that's really been what you're known for in the last, I don't know, several decades, isn't it really? Yeah, it probably is. Um, how it started, what happened? I then, um, I then became uh, pretty involved. In 1986, we had the World Aerobatic Championships in England. And I joined oh, Great Cerny. Friend yeah. at, at South Cerny. Yeah. And, and I joined Great Friend, God bless him, Steady Barker. Um, I was trying to find them some sponsorship. And Steady said, well, look, I think I can get someone to sponsor you. So you know what Steady was like. The next thing I knew, I was being zoomed off to VW and um, with Steady. And I mean, they just agreed to sponsor it. They gave us 120 grand, which saved the whole event, really. And they made it a VIP event for them. Um, pretty boring competition aerobatics because it's just like, ice skating, doing circles and, you know, accurate flying. But the last two days, the last day we had an air show. And um, I remember quite one quite funny thing, Steve, was that um, I was, I was uh, chosen to take His Royal Highness Prince Michael flying in a, in a Stearman biplane. So, you know, it's an honor to do that, it's a bit nervous. And they said, turn up, you must be there at least half an hour before His Royal Highness arrived. And they said, what you, you must definitely not do any aerobatics. <laughs> um, I said, well, why is that? They said, well, we can't have him getting out of the airplane and puking up in front of the world's press uh, and VW, boss of VW, you know, with him puking up in front of everyone. So I said, oh, okay, fine. Anyway, so I arrived half an hour before, every, before you know, when I should do. 
And the next thing that happened, I remember it, was this ambulance turned up and parked at the end of the runway. And I said, well, what's that? And they said, well, that's a Royal Ambulance. I said, well, what do you mean, right? Well, that's, that, you know, they've got all his blood on board there. And uh, if anything happens, I said, well, what about me? They said, oh, they won't worry about you. <laughs> and, 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 then, and then I also had, which was great, I had a purple airway. So, you know, when the Royals fly, they have their yeah. purple airway where no one else is allowed to fly. So I had a purple airway as well. Anyway, so anyway, His Royal Highness turned up. I was very polite, shook his hand as I would be. And I've, I've taken him flying since then a few times. And um, he's a really nice guy. And I, he's a helicopter pilot, I think. Anyway, so we're soldiering around. And he said, well, aren't we going to do any aerobatics? I said, well, if you're telling me to, so yeah, sure. So he said, yeah, yeah, no, I want to do some aerobatics. So <laughs> we then did aerobatics at Evering and I, you know, he loved it. He was fine, he was a great guy and we landed and he hopped out smiling and laughing and patting everyone on the back and it was all <laughs> forgotten, you know. <laughs> but it was quite amusing at the time. I wondered what the boss of VW was gonna say. Yeah, quite uh, a laugh, yeah. I yeah. yeah. But you, you must, so after that though, you. You acquired a couple of steermen, and, and you finished up having four steermen, didn't you? Am I right? Or I finished up having six. But, six? Okay. But actually, the first aeroplane I got was um, I, I ended up going to an air show in California at a place called Salinas, and I saw a wing walking act with a steerman. And in our country, in the UK, they, there was someone doing wing walking, but it was with a tiger moth, and you know didn't have any performance, couldn't do any aerobatics. A little bit boring, great fun, but a bit boring. And um, can you hear my dog snoring? Yeah, is that what it is? <laughs> um, yeah, and um, I saw this aeroplane steerman act there. So I thought that would be great. And I also thought, you know, getting older, I don't have to bash myself about too much doing uh, aerobatics with high performance aeroplanes. Because the new Russian, the new Russian aeroplanes were coming out, which were, you know, very high G maneuvers, plus nine, minus nine, sort of thing. Oh God! Yeah. And I, and I wasn't that good, you know. I was good enough, but I wasn't that good. And um, I thought, no, it'd be nice to do wing walking. Be a nice, easy job to do that. So, I then came back, and actually, the the a man like the god of air shows. It, uh, it was a fellow called Ray Hanna. And yep. Ray Hanna um, was a New Zealander in the Air Force and then became the leader of the Red Arrows um, and was sort of the best leader the Red Arrows ever had. And he'd just bought, he'd just bought from America a lovely Stearman aircraft. So I rang him up and I said, um, Ray, is there any chance you'd sell me your airplane? And he said, well, yeah, but it would be a hell of a lot of money. But I now had a sponsor, okay, lined up. So I had Yugo Cards, you probably remember them. I do, yeah, yeah. And Mike Carey, who was the boss of Yugo Cards, he'd, he'd, if he hadn't started, he was very, very early days in charge of the Red Devils Army Parachute Team. Oh yes, yeah. And he was very into flying. And um, so anyway, uh, I went to see Ray at Duxford, had a trip round in the aeroplane, bit nervous because he was in the front seat and, you know, I didn't <laughs> want to 
make a mistake doing the loop or whatever yeah. and landed and i said where well, right, i'd definitely like to buy the airplane so he quoted a price that was a high price more than it was worth and i stuck my hand out and i said okay i'll have it and he went uh, 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 and sort of pulled his hand back <laughs> he said well look let me think about it anyway he rang me up that night and he said look i've got a friend in california called gordon plaskett he's crop dusting guy he's into p51 mustangs he built my airplane he's got another one and i went over to see him literally next week and he had another lovely airplane nearly finished i bought that off him and that was our first airplane so then what happened you what go what, what 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 when are we talking about uh 87 right yeah i bought it in 86 but 87 was our first air show season 1987 gotcha yeah and um it was hugely in demand and it was a great show act. And uh, and then what happened was um, Hugo Cars after, I can't remember, you'd remember when, probably about 89 or something. Yeah. And um, I was looking for another sponsor and I'd agreed a deal actually with, I had a contract, but I hadn't signed it with Olympus cameras. And at the same time, I've written a letter to various people just saying we were after sponsorship. And at the same time, Cadbury's came on board and they said, can we come and see you? Um, Cadbury's crunchy. And they said, well, we need to think about this. I said, well, look, you've got to make your mind up because, and I showed them the contract that I hadn't signed. And they said, okay, we'll go to a board meeting tomorrow. They said, what? What would make the difference? I said, I'd like two aeroplanes. And that's okay. how it then became two. Yeah. And then and then it just became more and more because then the modern then the shows we started doing shows all over the world, Steve. Yeah, um, yeah you went you used to put them in the crate and go to China, didn't you? Yeah, we were I mean the China thing was just an amazing scenario. What happened? It was like 24 or five years ago. And um basically uh, Cadbury's had done a, an advert um, with by the Almond lot at Bristol, and yeah. they had a they had a helter skelter, and they had a biplane with a wing walker on. And the um, the Chinese had seen this, I think, and we got this funny email when it was just when emails had started, um, saying, "Would you bring your your airplane your airplanes to?" China to do a show and I thought it's ridiculous you know just absolutely crazy go to China so the girl who worked for me Helen worked out a price and I said well it's ridiculous you know so I said look first of all let's double the price because they're not going to do it anyway so she said okay so she sent the price back to them right doubled the price and they came back within 24 hours saying, okay, we'd like to do it. I said, well, it's, it's still a joke. They're not going to do it. I said, tell them we want half the money up front and the, and, and the rest of the money before we leave the UK. Bloody hell. So she went, Psh. yeah. <laughs> they came back the next day. Please give us your bank account. Within 24 hours, we had up. And then I was really worried because we had to make it happen. And... <laughs> You know, it was then. So I remember we going out to China. We arrived. 
and I mean, there was no English, no one could speak anything. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And they had this big flash airport at a place called Zhuhai, where the containers had arrived. And we arrived there, we started putting the airplanes together and everything. And then they had a big committee, an air show, and they had the Chinese Air Force there and all that stuff. And um, there was only the Chinese Air Force, us and the Russians, right? The Russians were there with their Sukhoi jets. And I remember going to this big meeting and there were, there must have been 15 Chinese military personnel um, all sitting at the big top table, all looking at, all looking at us really. And um, they had an interpreter and first of all spoke to the Russians and said, is it true that the Russian aerobatic team and the display team will do this, that and the other and everything. And the Russians were kicking up a real fuss. They're saying, oh no, we need more time. We need extra fuel. We need this, we need that, we need everything. And you could see the Chinese guys were sort of getting a bit fed up. The Russians were really being awkward. So then it came to our turn and the interpreter said, is it true? They used to call us the butterflies or something. Is it true that the butterfly team um, will do this, that, and the other, and other? Anyway, so I stood up and I said, first of all, I, it's an honor to be asked here. We, it's just, we're so excited to be about being asked here. And will you tell please the chairman here that we'll do whatever he wants us to do. We'll fly as many times as he wants us to. We'll do whatever he wants. And I sat down and she didn't have to interpret it. The top man smiled at me and said, thank you very much, Mr. Norman. <laughs> and from then on, from then on, we couldn't do a thing wrong. We yeah. could not do a thing wrong. We used to take off. They used to come on the control tower, which was a brand new building like Heathrow. And as soon as we took off, they used to all go outside on, and they said, can you fly around and run the control towers closely as you can? Um, and where can we fly with the crowd? And it was a huge crowd. I mean, they couldn't control the crowd. There was like a million people or something. Sure. I think they were charging or making the Chinese companies buy tickets. I, can't, I don't know how it worked. And people were bringing their babies for us to sign. And <laughs> I mean, it, and then we had a film crew following us 24-7, watching us eat because we couldn't eat chopsticks and all that <laughs> stuff. And I have to say, they were fantastic, actually. It was really good fun. And we ended up going back every two or three years. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's, so. There's a, um, <clears throat> we, we've got a bit of a time problem, but there's a, there's a couple of things that I really have to ask you about. Um, one is, tell us the story about the kamikaze pilot that you meant. There's a... Yeah. Just tell, the, tell everybody, it's a, it's a good story. Yeah, so we've been asked to display um, in Japan which was terribly exciting at the, uh, at the American air base, um, Awakuni, I think it was called. And um, so we arrived there and we were displaying an airbring and I met, I met this Japanese kamikaze pilot. So quite an old guy. And I, I asked, well, what's the story? You know, kamikaze pilot. He said, and it came out through the interpreter that Basically, he was, um, had been trained to be a kamikaze pilot. He'd been home to his hometown for a celebration with his family um, the, the week before he was to go on a mission, a kamikaze mission. And 
and dive bomb and end up dying himself. And <clears throat> they had the big celebration and how it was an honor for him to be doing this for Japan and everything. And he gets on the train to go back to his squadron. And after about an hour and a half, the train stops. And what happened, of course, his hometown was Hiroshima, which had just been bombed. Good. Yeah. And his whole family were wiped out. And um, he ended up really hating the Americans at that stage. And he ended up going back, not not to Hiroshima, but to nearby. And he had, he was with his childhood sweetheart who'd been going out with since, you, since he was like 12 or something. And um, he was waiting for a train and they weren't allowed, the Japanese had to be separated from the Americans. And this, um, this American soldier, uh, airman started being very rude to his sweetheart and he punched, he gave a punch to the guy and he was arrested and next morning ended up in a military court and he said he, he thought he was going to be shot and they said what had happened and then at the back of the room the american gi stood up and said um sir it was me who did that i was completely drunk i was i was to blame this man has done nothing wrong and of course they let him off and from that moment on he thought well not all americans were bad guys and he ended up being every year the guest of honor at this air base and was the most charming guy. And he was still with his childhood sweetheart. It's a lovely story, actually. Yeah. <coughs> Fantastic story. God. Yeah. Um, just just uh, before we, we, we really are going to run out of time, just tell us about, you got a rank in the RAF, haven't you? How did that happen? Well, I have. Yeah, I'm an honorary air commodore. The Queen has made me an honorary air commodore, which is a huge privilege. Um, why they chose me, I really no idea. But <laughs> I think it was probably because I've been to so many air shows. I've done over 2000 public air displays and a lot of those um, on RAF bases. And of course, a lot of the RAF guys who then become very high ranking air marshals, et cetera, et cetera. I knew when they were just flight lieutenants and you know, we've sort of all grown up together, I suppose. Yeah. And um, what happened then was um, when the government decided that 20% of the country's fighting force had to be reservists, um, they brought back, in the RAF case, some of those ex-reservist um, um, uh, reservist, uh, squadrons. Uh, and they, every squadron has to have an honorary air commodore. So they basically are the one that I am an honorary air commodore for us in Glamorgan. Cardiff and Glamorgan, 614 Squadron, um, and they opened a centre there, almost like a pop-up centre, to recruit people. Yeah. And um, it's been hugely successful. Um, I think we've got around about 90 people fully trained now, serving, a lot of them were serving, of course, helping with the COVID, but they're serving all, all over the world, really, and it's working really well. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a real honour to be involved with that. I've seen you in the uniform, mate. It looks great. <laughs> um, yeah, it's also nice. I'm also an, an ambassador for the Royal Air Force Association, um, and that's I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And I've recently become um, a befriender. So 
I'm talking to a lovely man now. I, I can't tell you anything about him, obviously, but he's um, 94 years old and, in, and he's just very lonely. And, you know, the, a lot of these guys are just very, very lonely. And the Royal Air Force does look after everyone who asks for help. It's a fantastic organisation. Yeah, fantastic. Well, look, yeah. thanks so much for talking to us, Vic. Um, um, I would like to thank you for getting involved in this, but also um, for those that are watching, uh, whatever you do, don't forget this book, Norman Conquest. It's uh, what you've heard in the last three quarters of an hour is about one five hundredth of what's in the book. So there's a lot more to investigate yet. Anyway, um, goodbye. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Vic. And uh, see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you on the Pioneer Run, uh, Steve, with our 1912 Douglases. And yeah, I hope 1913, it's obviously going to... Oh, well, you'll yeah. overtake me then. You'll be going quicker than me. <laughs> <laughs> see you later. Thanks, Vic. Okay, cheers. Bye.